0: This is the Low Tox Life Podcast.
1: If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this
0: clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 259 and I'm welcoming Dr. Sharmini Jane to discuss prevention, treatment and cure through the lens of neuroscience. Sharmini is a psychologist, a scientist, a social entrepreneur uh, and she actually founded uh, and is the CEO of the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, CHI. We'll talk about that a little later in the show. Um, and it's a collaborative accelerator that connects scientists, health practitioners, educators, and artists to help lead humanity to heal ourselves. And what I really, really love about this conversation and having Shamani now as a connection is that I can trust that there are people finding ways to move this dialogue forward in medical circles through rigorous research, proving hypotheses, and then actually getting traction in things like the hospital system to implement what they are finding, uh, to improve patient care, to uh, reduce the amount of disease in the first place, to prevent disease, and of course, to improve the healing journey Uh, It was a really, really, I have to say, super stimulating but also extremely comforting to know that Sharmini is out there doing this work Uh, because often we can have these discussions on the show and, yes, this works. Why is it not more well-known? Why isn't it out there? Uh, And every now and then you find the people that are finding ways to bridge the gap between that so-called alternative and mainstream. And uh, I absolutely love that about the work she's doing. So it's a really, really interesting show. We talk about everything from first getting some definitions underway so we understand what we're talking about, neuroimmunology, psychology, neuroscience, uh, uh, biofields, energetic healing, uh, spontaneous remissions um, and, uh, and how to actually uh, get the kind of research that wakes people up. So there's a whole bunch of great stuff in there and I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. Now before I jump into that conversation, uh, I want to share with you a very exciting offer that uh, exists for people who are maybe you're part of the great resignation that everyone's talking about. Um, maybe wanting to explore different opportunities, uh, a parent who wants something more flexible to be able to work from home. Uh, and I am introducing you to, if you don't already know, the wonderful network that uh, Helen Marshall over in uh, Western Australia, here in uh, Australia, um, has established with the Primal Alternative Primalista Network. So what this business is, at its foundation in terms of what it produces for people is grain-free food um, and it helps make transitions to eating grain-free diets easier. Now, you may be experiencing an autoimmune condition. You may have inflammation in your body. Uh, you may simply have a bunch of um, intolerances or allergies to things like gluten, uh, etc. even dairy. Most of their stuff is dairy-free. Um, And what Primal Alternative does is it hooks you up with the baker most local to you. Uh, Sometimes these Primalista bakers also range the um, products in local health shops, IGAs, places like that, Uh, and it helps you get access to these fantastic breads, pizza bases, wraps, granolas, cookies, oh, my gosh, the Choc Tip Cookies. Pastry and even things like uh, brownie mix, which I've actually collaborated with uh, Helen on producing. So you can get my chocolate brownies through the Primal Alternative Network. And um, uh, look, uh, my Primal Alternative local is Jita here in uh, Sydney. And uh basically what Helen then provides is a licensing arrangement where you get the recipes, the resources, the network to plug into uh, so much easier than starting a business from scratch or a brand from scratch all on your own because the website will literally um, spit out orders to local primer listers until you get to know your own and order direct from them. And uh, and it's just such a fantastic way. For you to then decide how much work you do or don't want to do Uh, and you can literally get cooking right in your own kitchen and Helen provides the network that teaches you how to do all of that. So the license basically a primal alternative license to become a Primalista basically gets you from A to B quicker than if you were to start a brand from scratch Uh, and the product development, branding, packaging, marketing, pricing, compliance, it's all done, which means you can get started on your business uh, and be earning money from home within two to eight weeks. Um, You don't need to recruit people. You don't need to create a network of your own. You literally just need to get baking once the orders start coming in. And, of course, you can do things like start your own social media and build community as well so that people know you're there and you're local. And what I love about this is, you know, my new book, Low Tox Life Food, came out over just over a month ago now uh, at the recording and um, publishing of this particular podcast. And, um, you know, eating local and trying to source food uh, as locally as possible is just its one of the biggest ways we can create change not only for our own health but also for the planet. Uh, and for example, there's very little plastic and very little travel in uh, terms of where that primal alternative product comes from and gets to. Uh, Things are baked with fresh whole ingredients and then you have them the next day. So the nutrient levels are higher. So health and the planet, tick, tick. And it's one of the reasons I I love this, not only as someone who's gluten-free and sometimes frankly also does not feel like I want to cook everything from scratch. It's really nice to have the primal alternative network to lean on. So if it sounds like you might like to take a look at what that business is as an opportunity. Uh, If you've been thinking of maybe you've got little kids and you're thinking, I'm ready to do something, but I don't want to go back to my corporate job that I had before uh, because I can't commit that way and, um, and I want to be with my kids. So, there's this really beautiful, flexible way of working when you join the Primal Alternative Network. Uh, So check out primalalternative.com and uh, book a call with Helen. So the way you do that is primalalternative.com forward slash call and you'll actually be able to chat to Helen herself and discuss where you're at. Um, and whether this might be a good match for you. But just to give you an idea, uh, this there are 210 Primal Listers in the network in four different countries. So this isn't even just an Aussie thing. I saw on uh, Insta a UK Primal Lister, a US Primal Lister. There's people all over the world who do this from home. And so she's also offering a few little sweeteners for the deal, a baking starter kit worth over 200, uh, sorry, $620, personalized Primal Alternative apron, a one-on-one coaching session with her herself, Helen, uh, six Primal Alternative bread tins so that you can get baking many batches in one go instead of having one or two things in the oven because you don't have the tools yet, And also 200 compostable, I love that, cellophane bags and 100 personalised labels for your first few bakes. So it very much gets you up and going and then $1,000 worth of digital bonuses. So if your interest is piqued by what I've talked about, uh, Primal Alternative is one of the sponsors this month. I'm introducing another really great one uh, next week, which is going to be especially exciting with summer around the corner. That will be your clue um primalalternative.com forward slash call book a call with helen have a chat and see whether this might be a great opportunity for you i love helen uh, i wouldn't have created a brownie kit with her if i didn't believe in this business uh, and I've met a lot of Primalistas over the years. A lot of the Primalistas listening today know that I have booked you guys for making the snacks for my talks and workshops around the country when I travel and speak. And um, it's uh, such a joy to know that I can plug into that network as someone who is an author and a speaker in this space and know that the food is going to be really nourishing, beautiful quality, whole ingredients and baked that day, if not the day before, um, for my guests rather than the old Arnett's and Lipton tea bags that come out of the uh, the usual um, office cupboards. So that always gives me a really nice um, reassurance there. So check it out primalalternative.com forward slash call. Get in touch with Helen and see whether it's for you now. Let's get back into the world of neuroscience. I'm so excited for this conversation with Sharmini. I've been following her on Instagram since I discovered her work and since we spoke uh, last month, and uh, I really do recommend that you do as well. We've got a whole bunch of details in the show notes today for you uh, to continue to connect with her work, including some of the things that she mentions on the in the interview today uh, in terms of extra links to go and check out and learn more. Enjoy today's show, guys.
1: Hey, Sharmini, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Alex.
0: I am really excited for this conversation. When I was reading about your work, uh, your book, I, a, a whole bunch of questions came up in my own natural curiosity. And I know energetics and healing are topics that are really exciting to our audience. Um, and we've talked to many fascinating people over the last five years. And so it is wonderful to have your expertise, which is quite different. You fill this whole new gap and I'm really excited about it. So I want to ask you first um you studied neuroscience first then you went into psychology then you went into neuroimmunology can you share just a little bit of insight into the path you chose how it unraveled for you in terms of your own curiosity and how you wanted to help people in the world
1: absolutely thanks for the question You know, initially, actually, I began my undergraduate work in psychology at Columbia University, but I became interested in neuroscience because I just found it so fascinating, so I started studying what was called cognitive neuroscience at that time, and this was in the early 90s, and what I realized was neuroscience was literally really just starting to come online it, know, it was so writing
0: itself right at the time it really was it was exciting yeah. so Eric
1: Kandel, who is a seminal you know researcher in neuroscience was there at Columbia at that time and they just created a major called neuroscience and behavior for undergraduates while I was there and like a crazy person I decided to switch my major my senior year into mm-hmm. neuroscience and behavior because I really found it fascinating to study the brain the issue was this at that time we were pretty primitive in how we study the brain we were told that the brain didn't change after age seven something that we now know was false and in my bones i thought was false when they said it and i remember sitting there as an undergraduate you know not really knowing anything taking in all this good information from professors and i said how do they know that the brain doesn't change after age seven. I mean, if you look around and you look at nature and you look at people, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And truly, there was just a certain amount of data, not a ton of data that they were basing that claim on. So I really enjoyed neuroscience, but I realized that we we were really so focused on the brain. And at that time, it was more like, what part of the brain lights up when I do this? You know, what I mean, that's yeah, what it was. Yeah. It was like, like kind
0: of the... Um- the focus groups for fast food uh, launches and things yeah where you see <laughs> right, them all so,
1: hooked up exactly hooked up it was very fascinating it was exciting and There was no real systems thinking going on that I could see, at least, you know, at this really great university that just wasn't there. And I remember one of my professors actually saying during my graduation, we were having lunch. And he said, you know, I don't understand why people are still studying things like the heart and skin conductance. I mean, we have the brain. (laughs) And I remember sitting there thinking, whoa, we're an interconnected system. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to study something that really looked at the interconnections between our brain and our health and how psychology fit in. And that's where I found my home area called psychoneuroimmunology. Now that's a mouthful. So we usually say PNI for short or PNE, which is psychoneuroendocrinology, which is related. And here's what we've learned. Over the last 50 years, we've learned that our brain and our central nervous system You know that is our autonomic nervous system is deeply related to our immunity it's deeply related to our hormonal health and our state of mind and state of emotions really impact our health now this may seem like old news now but 50 years ago nobody believed this Mm. 50 years ago everybody didn't even think that our brains were connected to our immune system much let alone that our emotions could affect our health so we're coming a long way And then because of my own personal experiences, you know, both growing up as an East Indian woman, Jan heritage in the U.S., growing up in the South around Baptist Christian friends, I learned really early that we all think differently and we all explore our spirituality in different ways. But I wondered why at these major universities we couldn't talk about consciousness. We couldn't even really talk about spirituality much at that time. Wow. Yeah, it was really wild. And, you know, we couldn't look at certain healing techniques. You know, later in life, meditation became a little more acceptable to study. And in fact, my first and most widely cited study is still in mindfulness meditation. I did, in my view, one of the most boring basic studies you could ever imagine. It's a randomized controlled trial looking at the effects of mindfulness meditation and comparing it with a com- with a comprehensive relaxation intervention and a weightless control group to basically ask the question is there something unique really about mindfulness it's the big buzz you know everybody mm. thinks it's great but is it just relaxation is there anything really different about it and in that study i found that indeed what the claim was for mindfulness that it helps bring us into a present moment awareness did seem to be reflected in these students who would do mindfulness, say, versus relaxation, they would have decreased ruminative thinking. Ruminative thinking is when we think about something over and over again. And when we're depressed and anxious, we tend to think about things that make us more depressed and anxious over and over again. And what we did find was that mindfulness was unique in interrupting that ruminative thinking and even destructive thinking, and that those changes you know, were actually what drove decreases in distress. And this was for stressed medical and pre-medical students. So my most widely cited study and what I realized was it was okay to study mindfulness from that point of view. But if you wanted to explore the deeper teachings of mindfulness that came from the indigenous communities where the practice was originally based. So if you wanted to explore spiritual experiences or energetic experiences or anything, you were literally shut down. And so I decided to literally evolve the research that I was doing. I looked at the mindfulness group and all the folks doing it wonderful researchers, really smart. And I thought, I'm not needed here. These guys are going to take this forward. This is great. I want to really explore these untold areas, these experiences that people are having that are profoundly related to their spiritual well being mm. and their sense of energy in the body. Because I had a sense from my own experience, and I talk about this in the book that this could be really helpful for patients that are deeply suffering, patients with cancer, patients with pain, patients who are so depleted that it's hard for them to take up a self-care practice like meditation or even exercise. What do we do for those patients, right? I had the sense that things like energy healing could be really profound. And from a scientific point of view, it was like, wow, here's a way to study consciousness and its effects all the way down to biology, because you can't explain it by stretching. You can't explain it simply by cognitive changes, as we do in clinical psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist, so you know, I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and other, uh, other ways. So those are great therapies, but we generally just focus on the mind. So it's popular and okay to study the mind. It wasn't really popular or okay to talk about energy. And I didn't understand that, and I thought that These practices seem to be really valuable. Someone's got to get out there and start looking at these. And we need to open up this conversation and make it okay. People are having these experiences. And so, you know, in a nutshell, kind of long-winded answer to your question, how did my study of this, you know, evolve, you know, through experience and recognizing that science is evolving? Yeah.
0: Well, it never, it's never stagnant, is it? No, the the science is settled is one of the um, unfortunate misnomers of our last year and a half. And while I can understand somewhere that people needed that to feel safe, you know, I'm extremely compassionate in these um, crazy times, uh, at at the same time we have to recognise that it is never settled. Science in itself is questions and evolution of thought and understanding and evolution of depth of understanding and clarity. You know, it just keeps unraveling.
1: I Um, always remind people that science isn't, you can't prove anything with science. Science, the scientific method is meant to disprove things, meaning that you have to be really humble as a scientist, right? You go in, you have an idea, you have a hypothesis, and then you honestly have to surrender it. You can't, you go in with no expectations. You think you have an idea and you try to set up the experiment to address the question. But in the end, you're not even really proving your hypothesis. You're only disproving that it couldn't happen. And and here's the thing. When we look at the energy healing studies, for example, what we can determine, we're not trying to prove that energy healing is real. What we're doing is we're exploring whether or not these practices have impact on what I call our whole person health. And that means, do these practices help reduce fatigue? Do they reduce anxiety? Is it beyond a placebo? Does it actually affect physiology? We can use the scientific method to explore that. You know, But we're not, some people will say, I don't need science to prove to me that energy is real. You know, I don't need that. And I say, absolutely, your experience is absolutely valid. The reason we do these studies and the reason why I'm so passionate about the work that I do and founded this nonprofit, the Consciousness and Healing Initiative to grow this field mm. is because we believe that these, these practices are very promising for patients based on the data that we've seen. And we think that just like we're incorporating relaxation and meditation and yoga, We could be incorporating these biofield or energy healing types of practices in the clinic and in the hospitals for patients to use. And to do that, you've got to create an evidence base. You've got to do the research. It's just that simple. Mm, Absolutely. And uh, I I want to unpack that because I want to ask
0: you about um, profit and loss in the medical system and, uh, and how that might pose somewhat of a challenge bringing these sorts of therapies in. But I want to also go back because something really interesting you said was around uh, ancient and indigenous spiritual practices and how they helped um, uh, whole body health and community health uh, were largely cut off and lost and you weren't even allowed to go back and explore them And it makes me think, because I've just spent the last couple of years writing a book on food and how our food system came to be the way it is today. And going back in time, this is why history and applied history are just so important um, to help us do better today, right, because you go back in time, you see all these um, excellent heroes, but they really were white saviors of the 20th century, exploring and creating biodynamics Uh, organic regenerative farming, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you go back a long time prior and these practices existed. Uh, They just weren't called a fancy name and didn't have a movement. They were just the way of life. Um, And then you look at uh, fire care for, you know, landscapes and you see uh, that, town planning and fire management are taught a certain way now and the Indigenous ways have been cut off but then you find there's an Indigenous specialist who knows absolutely how to manage landscapes to minimise wildfires and bushfires um, and that information has been cut off so there are so many areas that the wisdom exists but it's been stifled and it's heartbreaking and I just had to acknowledge. And hold space for that because you've then shared this other way so obviously.
1: Yeah, I'd love to dive into that a little more. I mean, what I will say is in my book, which is called Healing Ourselves, Biofield Science and the Future of Health. One of the one of the positive, you know, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on the book, which I'm very grateful for. And one of the things is speaking to this. We need to come to a place now where we realize that all streams of wisdom are really bringing us to the same place, and we do need to, and I talk about this in the book when I talk about the future of this, you know, really that we have to go back to the future and understand what the cosmology was underlying all of these Indigenous approaches, first and foremost, and realign with that cosmology because all of these indigenous healing systems understood that we were fundamentally interconnected. And that's mm. what the biofield is teaching us that we are fundamentally interconnected more deeply than we can even imagine. That literally we can consciously not even help heal ourselves, but help heal others. Right. Yeah. So that's very real. In the book, I bridge some of the ancient understandings of consciousness, healing, and the biofield with some of the concepts that modern day healers use today so that we can really understand because a lot of times people think energy healing that's a new woo thing no Mm. it's actually (laughs) not it's you know just like you were saying you know we have fancy terms for the way farming is done that actually stem from a similar cosmology that the indigenous practices came from and that they've been teaching for millennia in the same way when we begin to deepen our understanding of those indigenous frameworks which were so deep and so well thought out and so well explained things began to really click Mm. you know and that's what i've been getting from you know some of our you know wonderful podcast hosts and things like that when they read the book they say i've read it and you know it finally made now karma makes sense to me (laughs) this idea of these subtle bodies and how it relates to the science makes sense to me now So it's exciting because I think when we have books like this that really are bridging those ancient understandings with the modern perspectives, we realize that we are really talking about the same thing. We've just never linked these things together. Yeah. Right?
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Everybody has a piece of wisdom and we need to honor where these practices came from. We do the same thing with meditation. So in my book, I actually get into mind-body practices and talk a bit more deeply about the cultural origins of practices in different forms of meditation, as well as yoga, Tai Chi, and Qigong. I think it is valuable for us to understand the history, where those terms came from, and then what they actually said about the purposes of these practices, right? They were fundamentally, and here's the crux. I mean, if somebody asks, you know, what is, what is healing really about? And what did all of these indigenous wisdom traditions say, whether you were practicing yoga, Tai Chi, meditation, energy healing, we call them in the West mind body, because it, like I said, you know, in science it wasn't, and it still to some degree isn't um, safe to talk and say the word spirit. But the indigenous wisdom holders were very clear about this. These are mind, body, spirit practices. Yoga, as you might know, means to yoke, right? To unite. And these, they all talked about the the magic that happens when we unite the mental and the vital, when they call it the mental force and the vital force. So when we bring together our energy with our mind, first and foremost, just sort of on a surface level, right? We're allowing for a deeper contact with our spiritual core. And every healer I've talked to across any tradition, regardless of how they see the energy field or experience it. We'll all say that what is happening is a realignment with this person, with their soul force, their soul, nature, consciousness, nature with the, with the capital. And however, they describe that, right? That that process of realignment is what jumpstarts the healing process. That is truly what healing is. It's that restoration of harmony with reconnecting with the spiritual core. So I think one of the reasons why there are many reasons, as, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know why the indigenous practices and wisdom have been sort of set to the side for several hundred years, we can talk about that all day long. Um, but one of those reasons is because historically, there was this feeling that we needed to separate out spirituality and science because of domination by, you know, certain political groups of religious leaders and things like that and, you know, wanting science to be set free. Now, the cost of that was it was like we threw the baby out with the bathwater. You, know, you know, we can understand that we don't want science to be dominated by any religion, but there is a difference between religion and spirituality.
0: Exactly. I remember reading uh, what it, it was, Oprah's book. She released it a few years ago and it was What I Know For Sure. And uh, one of the, that was when I, I read the sentence, you can be uh, spiritual without being religious, but you shouldn't be able to be religious without being spiritual. That's where we lose um, yes. the magic of what the, the world religions provide is when we subtract spirituality from religion. But spirituality can exist without a religious framework at all.
1: Uh, and it's and, so neat because we actually mm. study this in science. We yeah. we look at the effects of religiosity on health and spirituality on health, and then we can look at these combined. And indeed, they are they are separate things. And I love what you just shared because, yes, if religion is meant to bring you back to the spiritual core and that recognition that, you know, ultimately we're all woven from the same fabric of life, then mm-hmm. our, our sense of reverence, whether we're, you know, trying to solve the the food system, Right or the the healing and healthcare system, when we're coming from that place of connected cosmology, which is you know what all of the indigenous spiritual practices have taught us, then our world looks very different, and the way that we work with the world is very different. Yeah, our motives. And even the way we heal ourselves is very different, (laughs) right? Absolutely, (laughs) bring it on.
0: Um, gosh. Okay. So that was a, that was a giant tangent. So I'm going to come back now to where we finished off before we went on that tangent, which was that you were wanting to bring these modes of healing. Are you wanting to bring yoga into uh, clinics and hospitals? Talk to me about how, how difficult that might be to do. Um, and what kind of level of scientific proof Is required to get the buy-in and for the probably um, very accurate um, phrase there buy-in how is it productized so that it works with our modern economy and is deemed useful in the medical system for you know because there's it seems to be very profit driven Um, and I have no no qualms about the incredible Science behind crisis care, you know, modern medicine is miraculous. I wouldn't be here, neither would my son, uh, without emergency C sections. You know, I could go Mm -hmm. on. Um, So it is absolutely not poo pooing medical, but it is about starting to see how we can start to harmoniously bring the excellence of all of it together, as you say, for whole body healing. Absolutely, yeah.
1: I mean, that's that's the first first thing that we can come to understand and celebrate is that healing is not an either or. It never has been and it doesn't have to be. We can seek modern medical care and we can help facilitate healing in ourselves every day. It really isn't an either or. Now, as you might know, Alex, in medicine, we usually look to something that we call the benefits to harms ratio when we're trying to choose an intervention or some kind of treatment for a patient, right? And what I can tell you, and I detail this um, very strongly in the book, the book has a very strong science base to it. So the first part of the book is sort of what is consciousness, what is healing, and we go through indigenous perspectives, as well as modern philosophical perspectives on consciousness, healing in the biofield. The second part is what's the evidence. And that's where I really get into some some good amount of detail on things like mind body practices placebo and energy healing including clinical studies and even studies with cells and animals with energy healing and then discuss a bit about mechanisms the third part of the book is actually all practical it's called the healing keys so it's a synthesis of everything we've learned even if you're not an energy healer or a deep practitioner of meditation you can use these keys to up level your self-healing so when we look at the data what we find is that there are over 400 clinical studies right now on these energy healing approaches for example right it, that might sound like a lot but it's not you know because there, it's kind of spread about many different types of practices healing touch reiki energy psychology lots of them right we we do different kinds of studies we want to look at effectiveness studies as well as you know placebo-controlled randomized controlled trials And there's a lot of debate about whether that's the right way to do those studies i personally ran a placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial while um i was at ecst and there's value in all of these types of approaches. you you never want to base your clinical decisions though on just one study right So you have to be able to create a base and as as people might notice, that's what happened for mindfulness. you know we started doing more and more studies of mindfulness. people still overreach the data they still productize they honestly productized beyond the data because they yeah. felt like. You know, oh, well, I have enough data now I can go out and like teach this to business people and whatever, and you know, yeah. it's thriving and you can wonder whether there's harm, but a lot of scientists get really irritated about that because, yeah,
0: I can imagine. you know, there's a
1: lot of overreaching and overstating that happens. The ultimate thing, though, is to look at cost effectiveness. And impact, and so what we're learning from the smidgen, and I will call it a smidgen I you know to me a couple hundred studies is a smidgen because you really want to have at least a couple of thousand and you want to build the research off of itself, you know so we see more synergistic programs of research, which takes money, right so that's what we're needing to do is really galvanize support for this research field. When you look at the data so far, what you see is that Many of these energy healing approaches, we see reductions in symptoms, of course, increases in, in in quality of life. We see changes in biomarkers, actually, even, and I detail this in the book, we're seeing effects of bioenergy healers on shrinking tumors in mouse models of cancer. Wow. So from the, And that's being done in MD Anderson Cancer Center right now. So And two studies have already been published on it. Nobody knows about it. So part of it is people need to know about the research that's out there, which is yeah. why I'm grateful we're having this conversation, and and the book is meant to provide that evidence base as well as practical learning, right? So people can really dive in and know how real this is. Um, When we look at this, though, we want to see, well, how does this matter? Like, do people get out of the hospital faster? Do they use less medication? Are we saving money in the hospital system because people are using these early? So for example, when they come out of surgery, if they get something like Healing Touch, you know, do does their pain and their functional outcomes actually improve so that they can leave the hospital quicker, right? These are the kinds of things we do. And then there's a whole preventative aspect of this, Mm -hmm. because in my mind, this is really where all of these practices shine. If we're in touch with our own energy, and the connection of our mind, with our vital force and our emotions, whatever practice we choose to use, there's so many, all of the data are showing us how many wonderful practices they are and they're all impacting our nervous system in powerful ways. We can prevent disease before it actually manifests in the physical system. So what we're doing is we're developing our subtle awareness and our subtle sensitivity. And so we may end up seeing an energy healer or an acupuncturist before we have a physical manifestation of the illness. Mm-hmm. And so from a cost-effectiveness standpoint, it's huge. To give you an example, in the U.S., the Academy, the National Academy of American Physicians, the American Academy of Physicians, I believe, the Mayo Clinic and several other groups have come together to create clinical practice guidelines for low back pain. And one of the first recommendations is actually to work with mind-body therapies, including chiropractic, acupuncture, and others. And there are some cases where insurance will now uh, reimburse for acupuncture, you know, for a good, solid. Wow. Hallelujah. For low back pain. So Mm -hmm. you build the evidence base, you educate the stakeholders on the evidence base, and then you influence the clinical practice guidelines and allow for a, a possibility for insurance to cover these practitioners to deliver the services. That's how it's done. That's why building the evidence base is important. I will just say this for anyone who's really interested in this aspect of the conversation. I mentioned my nonprofit, the Consciousness and Healing Mm, Initiative. I was going to ask you about that. We have a ton of free resources for you guys on this. So my book is really more, it's kind of more fun. It's lay friendly. It's got stories, stories of healing. It's, you know, and it's got a really strong evidence base. So it's really more of a fun read for folks that are kind of into this already. You want more data and things that you can share with stakeholders go to www.reportonhealing.com reportonhealing.com you will find in there we did a deep dive of this field interviewed over 62 stakeholders in policy education research you know technology and we delivered a state-of-the-art report on the field of biofield science and healing which you can freely access on our website there's an 82-page report there is a 12-page summary and there is a roadmap for systems change. So, this very question that you're asking, Alex, how do we how do we really change the system? We analyzed that. We, you know, we looked at all of that, we looked at the data, and then we recommended specific key transformational points to integrate healing therapies into healthcare. That's the work that we do at My Nonprofit. And for anyone who's interested in learning more and potentially supporting our efforts with that, I invite anyone to contact me. Brilliant.
0: And what I love about that is the most is that uh, it's not then going to require you to go to a fancy $600 an hour doctor to get an integrative approach, which for now is unfortunately reserved to a very small group of either very desperate people uh, or uh, very wealthy people. And we need to make integrative care more accessible. So that is just, that's huge that that's being worked on
1: yeah thank you we are here to democratize healing the consciousness and healing initiative is a collaborative so we're not an institute we actually foster collaborations across organizations that's that's what we do because we know this is a movement and it it takes all hands right so we have wonderful organizations that are helping move this forward and yeah we there are two vectors right there's health care which we've been talking about a lot and then there's self-care and you asked well how do you productize this and and whatever so You know, in my book, I joke around because I come from the East Indian tradition and we talked about indigenous practices. We have very lively and important dialogues going on right now in the healing community about licensure and certification and all of that. And we have indigenous leaders that are really against that from their perspective. This is spiritual work. They don't want, you know, in in their words, you know, the white man to come and tell them what shamanism is and tell them whether they can practice on their people and that they've got to go get a certificate. You know, so this is a very lively conversation. And and we this, this is part of the work that we do at the nonprofit. We have council meetings where we discuss these issues and then educate the public on the issues. And the community will have to come to a sense of understanding and harmony around the issues. And, and it's too late to say what will happen, but I predict what will happen is that we will have a group of people that regard this work as spiritual practice and the practice will remain as a, as spiritual practice. Mm. And then there are other groups that I think are really interested in putting these into healthcare settings. And for that, you know, I think they're going to probably have to have some sort of licensure or certification process, just like acupuncture, chiropractic, mm. and other groups, right?
0: Yeah. And if that's what gets it in and integrated, uh, frankly,
1: (laughs) I think if we think
0: about the patient being mm. the most important person in this picture, then fine, yeah. get the certificate if you need to get the certificate and get into that system and fix it, if make you, it better. If you're going to
1: do it in that system, right. Yeah. Or you can, you know, you can seek the counsel of someone outside of the system, you mm. know, and that could be affordable for you as well. Some of, some of the spiritual leaders in Indigenous practices practice free. There is mm. no charge for that, right? And they may receive donations or they receive their funds in different ways. But there's a whole other aspect to this, I think which is even more empowering to me. It's wonderful to see our practitioners when we need them. And we often need them, right? We need to see our acupuncturists sometimes. We need to see our doctors, MDs, NDs, lots of different folks who are experts in the field. And what the biofield teaches us too is how much we can do with our own self-care. Mm. So again, that preventative medicine angle, you know, the, the idea that we don't have to choose. We can see our acupuncturist and we can engage in Tai Chi Qigong, meditation, breathing, so many different practices. And in my book, The Healing Keys, I really tried to make this as democratized, honestly, and accessible as possible. And I give meditations and practices that we can all do that are evidence-based, that draw from the best of what we know in psychology, meditation, and energy healing. And the keys are really simple. They're really, the healing keys, which is the third part of the book, is they're really universal principles in a way that we can learn from, from all of these different traditions. The first is grounding. Mm. That's literally coming into harmony with our bodies and the earth, right? That allows us to expand our sense of presence, expand our sense of body awareness and restore our vitality on the energetic level. So that's the first key. And then the second key is flowing with emotions Emotional health is huge. You know, as you know, we have a mental health crisis, what's called a mental health crisis, very interesting (laughs) term, Mm. you know, to call it a mental health crisis because we mentalize everything. But emotional healing relates to, of course, healing our thoughts, but also healing our bodies, connecting with our energies. So there are practices I share about how we can flow energetically with our emotions using very simple practices like the breath. Creativity is the third key. In my view, it's very overlooked as a healing key. There is, a, there, there is research showing that when we engage in everyday creativity, which can look different for all of us, it can be as simple as journaling, writing a poem, cooking a fun meal, wearing an outfit that expresses your personality. I mean, there's so many ways to just express your creativity. It turns out from the data that when we do that, we actually up-level our mental health, and it's a daily thing. So you don't have to create a huge magnum opus, right? You can actually just engage in your creativity every day. And then there's connection, which is connection with self, connection with others, and connection with something larger than your conditioned mind, right? Whether you call that spiritual guidance, God, whatever. That's a huge healer. We have so much data showing the power of connection in all of these different ways. And then the last healing key, which is surrender. It's something that we often don't think about, as super powerful unless you know folks are following kind of the addiction work you know that's often the first key in many models of working with addictions and people ask me about that well why is surrender so important and when we look at all of the data actually even behind things like placebo what we find is yes we have these conscious expectations and they matter but for powerful healing what we see from these practices is that when we release our conditioned minds, and we literally realign ourselves so that we recognize we're part of a larger fabric of the whole, then truly miracles happen. That's how they happen. Because we, we get into our bodies, we feel our feelings, we open our creative energy, we ask for support, and then we release. Hmm. And that releasing is a huge part of the healing process. Hmm.
0: So releasing expectation, desire, uh, when is this going to happen, uh, and actually just surrender it to the unknown.
1: Yeah, because unfortunately, the way our society is, our minds often go into agonizing about our healing process. Right? We we get anxious. We start wondering why isn't it working why am i not seeing it like this this is what i expect and people ask me all the time well if expectation is so powerful as we see in the placebo research then why is it then when i will something to happen and i say i want this to happen i want my healing to look like this that it doesn't work but it's exactly that right we're working from a level of ego Mm. which is literally that's what the spiritual traditions teach us yeah it's Simply limited. It's a it's the conditioned mind. So you're not opening yourself up to that wider possibility mm. that exists. And you may not even see how healing and support is coming to you because you think it's gonna look like this. Yeah. <laughs> so you <don't> a funnel <laughs> vision about it. And then you might actually notice that it's coming to you, but in a different way than you expected.
0: Yep. I love that. Oh, so good. Oh my goodness. Uh so. Can I ask you what are some of your favorite daily ways? How does does this work show up, um, your preventative work show up? Is it planned? Do you have a bit of a habit stack? Do you tend to fit it in where you can? I mean, you know, being a parent, working hard, I can imagine life's busy and that's obviously sometimes a question for many of
1: us. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking um, well, the healing keys have really come out of my experiences. And what I've noticed is when you go through these healing keys, literally just pay attention even to the healing keys and notice how they show up in your day. So it can be more of an effortless thing. You know, first you, you, it is helpful to have a little bit of discipline around this. And in the book, I share ways that you can create your own healing rituals. So in the beginning, if this is especially new, creating sacred space and really, you know, having a sacred space and I have that for myself and, You know it's not a separate room in my home it's actually you know in a little corner of my bedroom but that's you know mostly all i do there if possible and i create a time ideally in the morning but if i can't do it in the morning for some reason then i will do it in the evening where i sit and i do my practice and my own spiritual practice these days tends to be mantra meditation that's what i do and i actually have taught that and i teach that in retreat centers and online Um, but that's just one practice you can do any practice But doing a practice where you can dedicate some time in your day, every day, to simply sitting and what I call, you know, getting grounded, again, using that first healing key and really grounding in the body. Um, I suggest people sound an invocation. I'm a big proponent of the power of sound. So for me, that's part of my practice is I literally make sound for me that's mantra but it doesn't have to be right mm-hmm. it can be just a sound in the body really grounding yourself in the body and being present coming into presence and then allowing for your practice whatever it is and it could be a movement meditation practice it could be a breathing practice you know there are many practices you could do but i i do for me that has been really helpful to have a little bit of structure and discipline around that to say, I'm taking this time. And what's been really gratifying, Alex, is I recently got uh, contacted by one of the folks who read the book. And she sent me a picture of her ritual space. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what? I've been following your advice. I set up my ritual space. And it's in her office. She's in this high rise. And it's very simple. It's just a bench with you know a candle and a little fountain. Yeah. They talk about incorporating elements of nature in your sacred space. And she said, I've just been doing this 15 minutes a day, and I can tell you it's already making such a huge difference. So it it doesn't take much. You know, it really doesn't. We can start where we are. Yeah, we start where we
0: are. And I think also key is to not fall into the default modern human mode of thinking, oh, I have to add this to my to-do list. So it becomes a a requirement uh, and an expectation. and then." naturally the body is stressed and feeling like it has to show up, otherwise it's failed. And then yeah. that is so the opposite of the point here.
1: You know what's so helpful, I think, in this regard, and I, and I actually give people a worksheet, especially for creativity in my book, because I know that a lot of people don't consider themselves creative and they, they feel a little weird about being creative that they haven't felt like they've been in that space for a while. Yeah, I really encourage folks, you know, when you take an inventory of, What, first of all, is your body mind asking you to do? Mm. Try to make it as fun as possible. And sometimes the way to make it fun, I mean, not everyone loves to physically exercise. I'm, you know, one of those people. It takes me a little while to get on the track of physical exercise. And what I do is I check in with my body the day that I exercise or even right after a workout. And I say, how am I feeling? I'm like, well, I'm feeling really good. And so just tapping into whether you're starting a meditation or... You know a creative practice or a walk or whatever it is give yourself a moment to check in maybe even journal it write down because that feedback makes it makes it so much more fun you realize it's not a chore it's actually something you're doing for yourself that you're enjoying that you're seeing benefit from you know there's a joy to that because when we free our energy we free our joy Mm. and and i love this because there's so many ways. I mean, mantra meditation might be my thing. For somebody else, it might be like running five miles. Yeah. In both cases, you're getting grounded, you're moving your energy, you know, you're allowing for some time for your mind to just sort of relax ideally and not you know, be thinking about a million things a day. So you're having that consciousness shift. You're taking care of your body-mind. Mm. And that's a very, that's joyful. You know, sometimes there's a hump, like, (laughs) like, let's own that. that, All of us, you know, had our own ways of dealing with pandemic. For me, I definitely lost some self-care for a little bit. I, you know, I lost a lot of things like others that we used to do, right? Like music performing and things like that, right? A lot of us didn't have that. So you had to find new ways. So there may be a little bit of hump. There may be some adjustments during pandemic, you know, even lockdown but we can be creative. Yeah. And then just notice what happens.
0: I love that. So it's such a a great invitation. I quite like that you wove the pandemic in and having to find new ways. Um, That's that surrender piece, right? You could be upset Mm. and hanging on to the fact that something's been taken away or you could use it as an opportunity to explore something new.
1: And I'll share a personal story on this. Actually, a year before the pandemic, I moved and I was really active as a singer, you know, in San Diego at the time. And I, I'd been living in San Diego for quite some time, had some really wonderful groups going and, you know, regular gigs, really great gigs. So I actually joke that, I, you know, I kind of went through withdrawal before all of my friends because. Yeah, <laughs> I, you did. I didn't move. And with the move and writing the book and the family and, you know, there's a lot going on. And I said, okay, I'm going to have to prioritize and kind of grow up about this a little bit. You know, I'm not going to have time to try to put a group together right now. Then the pandemic hit and, you know, like all of my friends, it was like, oh, wow, what a bummer. Like, you know, how are we going to have our creative outlet? So people started doing things online. They tried, but a lot of musicians were very depressed. Yeah. And what I found for myself is when I finally went into a place of surrender about it and I said you know, maybe, maybe my musical journey now is just not going to look like it did before. At least right now, it's just not. And I need to just accept that and move on and just open to what op- happened next. The surrender mm, is not just a sad kind of giving up. <laughs> it's yes. it's literally just so you know, important to articulate. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's not a sad giving up. It's actually an opening where you say, you simply say, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. How cool, because now I'm going to open up to what happened. And in my case... I started writing songs and they would just come to me and you know, I'm still in process. I'm still working on that. You know, it's still very busy for me right now with the nonprofit and the book mm. promotion and things and the family and things like that. So I still haven't gotten my music group together, but my husband started bringing home flutes during the pandemic. He's a drummer. So it wasn't like he was out drumming and we're playing flute together. We're actually playing flute with our kids, which is really fun. And, you know, we're we're just doing things together musically that we didn't do before. And, and there's something that's really literally healing about it.
0: I love that story. Thank you so much for
1: sharing it. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah we're all going through it, right? I mean, mm. none of us are standing here on a podium as the expert. I mean, I think that time is gone. Like yeah. we're all learning. You know, I've had the privilege of diving deep into the science and the practice of healing, and so I'm really jazzed to share that. But, you know, Our own experiences are our biggest teachers sometimes too. Oh, they really are. They really are. Um,
0: We've talked a lot about prevention and self-care. I want to talk about disease reversal and some of the evidence there because you've done a lot of work in that area. You have seen and studied spontaneous remissions and, and, and that kind of area as well. And I think it's something that fascinates people because uh, you know, you often think cancer, oh, that's a death sentence. people yeah, still think that. Good. Even though we've come really quite far with cancer um, cancer uh, statistics, they're still not great. Um, what is the work that you've done that gives you hope that we might be able to have even more positive results for cancer patients today?
1: Wonderful question. A couple of resources I want to point people to. First, you know, in the beginning of the book, I actually share a story by um, folks that I know Mm -hmm. well. And in fact, I was so taken by their story and I felt like it needed to be told because there was no case report written on the the story that I I did an interview with them recently, which people can find on the Consciousness and Healing Initiative YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. It's the story of Mira. Mira was two years old when she was diagnosed with a brain cancer and her parents did what any parent would do they immediately went into surgery the tumor was removed thank goodness she did radiation unfortunately during the radiation she she started having developmental delays which her father attributed to the radiation it was just an unfortunate side effect a few months later the tumor came back but in this time in an area of the brain stem where the doctor said they could not operate So they were basically saying, there's nothing we can do. And if we do more radiation, it's possible that, you know, it may not make a difference. And she would have more developmental delays than she already does. So the parents were, you know, as you can imagine, just kind of coming to, terms that they might lose their daughter. Mm. Anyway, I tell the whole story in the book. And I also, you know, it's, they tell their, their story, which is really powerful in the interview, which is freely available on YouTube long story short their friend connected them with an energy healer in israel the energy healer story is incredibly compelling she was actually a survivor of the holocaust and was found under her mother's body as an infant (gasps) and felt like she had been given these healing gifts so she was an extraordinary healer she's no longer living i'm going to say that because a lot of people are contacting me asking where they can find um she worked with mira for several months i think about six and the the love shot and you can read about the story because it's just an amazing story. Mira is alive today. Wow. She's in complete remission. The doctor said this is a miracle. We have no idea how this happened. We're not averse to believing in miracles. This was a case of her parents at the, and you know they didn't go get other medications. They weren't doing radiation or chemotherapy. They weren't you know, they they tell their whole story in the video and in the book, so I won't belabor it we'll, here. We'll um,
0: we'll link to it in the show notes because yeah, I sure people would be interested. Yeah,
1: because it's really such a deep dive and they're so beautiful. And it's also such a deep dive into what healing really means, because, you know, she does have developmental delays. She's 20 years old now Mm. and she's a force. I mean, she's doing baranathiam dancing. She's volunteering and helping other kids with disabilities. She's just just an extraordinary young woman. Mm. And her case is actually not as unusual as we think. So there are several folks you know that have been looking into this for many decades. And we need to know more. We need to understand the common factors. My friend Kelly Turner wrote a wonderful book some years ago called Radical Remission, mm. where she highlighted in her research some of the top factors that she found that seemed to re- seem to connect with these cancer patients that would have these so-called remissions. And spiritual connection was a, was a huge factor there, right? But there are others as well. And I invite people to look at her book. I'd also recommend people check out the book by my colleague, um, Dr. Lorenzo Cohen at MD Anderson Cancer Center, who is actually leading some of these energy healing research studies that I was telling you about with mouse models of cancer. He wrote a book called Anti-Cancer Living, which, you know, really synthesizes some of the key things that they found in cancer prevention. Mm. So ultimately, we look at these, and modern medicine is still calling them miracles. But when we look from a framework of whole person health, Yes. That's what we need to do now because when we incorporate what seem like these wild or unbelievable things into a whole person health framework where we understand that the power of the spirit, the power of our energy, the power of our thoughts, our emotions, our relationship, our diet, our physical activity, and our cancer treatment can all play a role in our healing. You know then we're really understanding that we are an interconnected system our bodies are interconnected we are interconnected with everything around us so hopefully in the next 50 years we won't have a term like spontaneous remission because we'll figure <laughs> out what the causes and consequences are. But I will say, because we haven't invested a lot in this type of research, we still have more questions than answers. That's the truth. Mm. You know, some of this leading edge work that's going on right now in the energy healing is going to help us get a little bit clearer on the bioenergetic level, what's happening. So we move, move from just thinking about the body as a machine or the body as a sack of interacting chemicals to a body as bioelectromagnetic. And bioenergetic. We do know that the body is bioenergetic. We emit bio photons. We, you know, we look at the effects of. Um, of our consciousness and our health by looking at things like electrocardiograms, electroencephalograms, that's measuring the biofield of the body, right? We were used to also thinking about them in terms of how we respond to chemicals. And we talk about neurochemicals in the brain. So we know we're chemical beings, we know we're physical beings, and what we're learning from the biofield science work is that we're also bioenergetic beings. And that's actually not so wild, I mean, to think about because We look at the EEG, the electroencephalogram, or the EKG. We're actually studying the biofield of that, right? We're actually looking at the electromagnetic readouts of the heart or the brain, and it tells us something about our clinical health. Turns out we also emit bio photons. That's a real thing. Those are packets of light that are actually emitted by our cells and our physical bodies. And we're just uncovering what that means for health. There are studies with cells that are telling us that. Bioelectromagnetic emanations like biophotons can tell us about our state of inflammatory health, for example. There are many things going to Yeah, so there are a lot of things that we're going to discover mm-hmm. about wow. our bioelectromagnetic selves and our bioenergetic selves that are going to help us understand the, all of these keys to what we call whole person health. And so for me, what's so exciting about the biofield work. Whether we're talking about measuring mm. some bioelectromagnetic emanation, or we're talking about things like distant healing, which we really can't understand scientifically fully right now, but we're happening, right? And we know that there's data showing that there's impact of those things. Yeah. We talk about all of that as the biofield, the fields of energy and information that guide our health. We have fancier terms of describing it scientifically, but essentially that's fields of energy and information that guide our health and connect mm. us. You know, going back to our earlier part of the conversation of the cosmology of connection if we were approaching our health let's just talk about personally you know our healthcare system is, a, is is another level of this right but even for ourselves even for ourselves if we're approaching our health yeah from a whole systems whole person health point of view then we can understand that things like energy healing really do have an impact because We are deeply connected. That's what the cosmologies of all these ancient traditions taught us. So the biofield isn't really that far out from that perspective. It's only far out if we're looking from more of what I call the pathogenic separatist model of medicine, which quite frankly we're learning is outdated. It's just an outdated view of the body and an outdated view of the body-mind.
0: Yeah. Mm, The idea that you could look at a body part – and think yeah. it's broken I'll fix it and then everything's magically fixed no like uh no system works alone right You hear um Dr Perry Nicholson talks about this all the time never works alone never heals alone and um and I, I love that uh, idea because it it guides us further towards the truth and uh, as someone who had a whole a multi-system illness uh, that I'm still recovering from, mold illness Ooh. from uh, years of um, water damage exposure that we weren't aware of. Um, what was really uh, the biggest learning experience of this whole situation for me has been um, not to look at the thirty seven crazy symptoms that I had. Um, as individual things to fix, but to go, why are all of these things going haywire? Hello, nervous system. Hello, whole body energy biofield. And uh, if, if, you know, because we're having more and more multi-system disorders, uh, autoimmunity, you know, you name it, all of the things that are happening. And I don't necessarily believe it's entirely due to the toxic exposures and things that might happen um, in their granularness themselves alone or isolated, but it is because we have stopped whole body healing that we have these things happening in the first place. I I genuinely um, offer myself up as having missed that part myself in my 20s and 30s, how important that whole body approach is, how self-care is not a trendy Productize things with pretty pink journals and um, an online mentor. It's actually just having a beautiful corner in your house, like you say, and just going to it because you want to go to yourself. And, you know, so, so important that we have these conversations to help. Absolutely.
1: And thank you for sharing that personal story. It's so important where we're going, you know, that we we realize you know all of the ways that we have been taught to look at things as separate look at ourselves as separate look at our spirit as separate from our body look at our environment is not necessarily impacting our health you know and as you said even just look at the symptoms and then each symptom separately i mean it's crazy making and it doesn't even make sense because when we look Mm. at things from a systems point of view You know working with that cosmology of interconnection things actually begin to make more sense and you know this is why we're seeing big advances in areas of systems biology and omics and Mm -hmm. all of this you know there are fields of science where we're really pushing the envelope of looking at system science and applying that to the body but we don't have to be experts in you know in metabolomics right to figure this out for ourselves we can actually look at our environment we can look at our food we can look at our diet we can look at our movement we can look at our interpersonal relationships and you know we just kind of take an inventory and then we just explore i mean we don't have to be our own doctors necessarily but it's nice to Mm. kind of just take a little bit of an inventory and say what areas do i feel i could really use some support in and that's really good because then you know you don't have to do it all yourself you can go seek support where you need it but then you've got kind of Mm. inventory because when we realize that we we can work on all these different levels You know, that's where the fun begins. And what's cool is what we're learning from whole person health is that Mm -hmm. you perturb a system in one way and it affects the other. And I can tell you, when I do physical exercise, it impacts my (laughs) biofield, you know, it impacts my spirit. So it's not like I'm just working on the physical level. No, I'm not. You know, Mm. if I spend some time with my son doing something creative, it's affecting me mentally, emotionally, physically, you know, in all these ways. So,
0: yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, so good. Um, So I
1: I think it's time
0: for us to issue a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say challenge, that makes it part of a to-do list and that makes it Mm -hmm. seem like it's going to be hard, Um, but an invitation for people to accept and be curious about as to what, We might like to explore this coming week after hearing uh, an interview like this with so many big uh, gains obviously demonstrated uh, where we're at scientifically and where we're about to head for starting to do some more work to connect to ourselves. Why the heck do we find it so difficult in the first place to do this And, and how can we frame it in such a way that people accept that invitation yeah
1: week. thank you alex I mean, this is just the nature of behavior right it's just we get put in patterns and we put ourselves in patterns and then it's just the the flow of energy you can think of it from an energy principle right it's just i'm used to running this groove even if i don't like this groove this is just what my body mind is used to so we're perturbing the system right we're going to perturb the system with something new something different and my encouragement to everyone listening today is to pick one thing that brings you joy. Pick one thing that brings you joy, whatever it is, don't worry about whether it's the strongest thing, the most impactful thing, the most evidence-based thing, whatever it is, Pick pick something that brings you joy and play with that, come into it with a sense of play and just play with that thing, whatever it is, a walk, A meditation. I have, by the way, free meditations on my website and on an app called Insight Timer, which if anyone does meditation, you know, Insight Timer is a fabulous app. It's got lots of meditations. I have a couple. So if if meditation is your thing, look, that's easy. I've got some meditations for you. There are apps all over that have great meditations, but just pick one thing, being creative, getting grounded by going into nature, uh you know uh doing some movement practice connecting in with your heart space just something that brings you joy singing dancing talking with a friend and then i invite you after you do that, that that same day doesn't have to be right away but just whenever convenient reflect before the day is over and write out what that was like for you what did you notice you know be your own scientist here because when you see the data for yourself of when you just allow yourself to do something that brings you joy, that's going to empower you to understand that you can really perturb your own system for the better, right? And then, and then yeah, you, you throw totally. another stone in the lake and create another ripple and then another ripple. And then before you know it, you know, you're you're on your way. You're just, uh, you're unstoppable
0: unstoppable what a beautiful place to finish Sharmini I really really enjoyed this conversation thank you for the work you do it uh it makes me happy in my heart to know this work is being done in the world and I look forward to popping into a hospital in the future visiting a friend taking care of a family member and hearing the doctor not say there's nothing more I can nothing more we can do but there's nothing more I can do, but let me bring in my colleague here who works in the biofield area to support you further. And, like, how amazing would it be if we could get there in the next couple of decades? I'm, I'm, I feel it's truly possible after conversations like this, and for that I want to thank you.
1: Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure and an honour.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart S T U A R T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support, and community around leading a low tox life. I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the low tox club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29-30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see Join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.